Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and it is time for Guide Talk, or guys who talk, and they do it well. So let me know what questions you have on your mind today. You can send them over on the text line to 877-933-2484. My power panel today is Pastor Tom Parrish and Jeff Verdorn with special guest Sam Verdorn joining dad. He's not necessarily going to be on the air as far as I know, but he's here in the studio <laughs> with us. So I was a delight to see you guys. Gentlemen, welcome. Hi, Good to be here, Bill. Let me know what your questions are. 877-933-2484. Here's a question uh, already. Uh, where is hell now and in the future? Where is this lake of fire? Well, we don't know where it is. It's a spiritual place. Um, The first part of the question is, where is it now? I believe that now, if you are lost, if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, when you die, you are destined for a place that in Scripture is called Hades. And Hades is a place of torment uh, where you are held to be brought before the great white throne judgment, the final judgment day of God. And after that, it says that those, when Hades is brought before God in the great white throne judgment, their names will not be found in the Lamb's book of life. And then they are thrown into what's called the lake of fire. And the lake of fire is the second death. This is the day when John 3.16 literally becomes a reality when it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Uh, So there's actually two places in Scripture. First is called Hades, the holding place for all of the unrighteous dead uh, until final judgment day, which then they will be thrown into the lake of fire. Just one last kind of side note, there's actually no place in Scripture called hell. Hell is the Greek Gehenna, and it's basically a metaphor for a bad place. So when you say they go to hell, it's basically saying they're going to a bad place. The proper names as described in Scripture are Hades and the lake of fire. Good insight. Hmm. No kidding. I like that, but I'm thinking of John 17, 3, where Jesus says, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And over my many years of ministry, I've had the same question, Jeff, over and over about, you know, Hades, lake of fire, all of that. And I've tried to explain it, and you do a great job doing that, but here's the bottom line. If you're not caught up in the eternal life because of Jesus, you don't want to go to any of those places. <laughs> and so the best thing is to stay out of there. And Jesus says the way you stay out is by putting faith in me. And so uh, don't get confused by the lake of fire or hell. You know, get right with Jesus and you won't even have to worry about that. You know, in so many places in Scripture, Jesus makes that very simple distinction, right? Narrow is the gate that leads to everlasting life. Broad is the gate that leads to destruction. You know, there's the wheat and the tares. The wheat are gathered in and brought into the barn. The tares are are burned, you know, the the branches that aren't connected to the vine. Over and over, the good and the bad, the wise and the foolish, the wheat and the tares, the sheep and the goats. I mean, he makes that distinction, that simple distinction, over and over. He does. 
All right. We often will say John 10.10. We love that verse. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Of course, Jesus says that. We don't quote John 10.20 very often, which is this. Many of them said, he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? Been a problem since the beginning of time, hasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we some there is a demonic world out there. Uh, there are powers and principalities uh, that we don't understand, and it's always not always. It it's I notice that God in His Word actually doesn't give us a ton of information about this spiritual world. We have a half a dozen or so instances where the the demonic world is seen. And you, you cast out some demons or a demon was cast out of this person or this d- demon was uh, whatever. And we don't have a ton. And I, th- I think the reason why is that we really can't see the spiritual world. What we can do is trust in him who controls it all. And he is the commander of the armies of heaven and, and of earth and everything else. So we fix our eyes on him. We pray to him and we let him worry about the details of the battle. I agree, and I think the problem when you look at this text and we talk about these things is that there is a tendency for us not to really want to look at the truth. Human nature is we deflect. If we don't like what it says or we don't like what it demands or we don't like the time we got to put into it, we find a different way. Now, I've been dieting all my life. The bottom line to dieting, I don't care what diet I go out and try to get a hold of or work with, here's the bottom line. Quit eating so much, Tom. It's, I mean, it's that simple. That's what it's it comes down to. It's not a demon to. that's causing it. It's energy. not a okay. demon, but in my case, it's a, it's a diet issue. I don't want to face that truth. I want to say, well, you know, maybe I've got a bad metabolism, or, or maybe this is just heredity. And then, No, I put too much in my mouth. When it comes to these things, even the people back then with Jesus, they didn't like what he was saying. <laughs> it disrupted their worldview. And that's the problem we have today. People's worldview is disrupted by Jesus. And therefore, they would rather avoid what he says and create a generic Jesus, or as I've said, a Jesus of their imagination, that's just going to accept everything. And yet the Jesus of the Bible is not the Jesus we hear about in the world today in most cases. Yeah. You know, and Paul says our battle is a spiritual battle. So no doubt the weapons that we fight with are not the weapons of this world, right? We are in a spiritual battle and we need to stand firm then with the belt of truth and the and the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And that's how we are to fight this battle. Um, but, you know, make no mistakes. There is a spiritual world out there. And in fact, when some encountered Jesus and thought he was doing what he did by the power of Beelzebub, right? Mm-hmm, he, yeah. They thought he was, you know, a, a, a demonic spirit and not one from God. They didn't see the truth of Christ. They thought he was from another place. And uh, and here there are some that saw Jesus and said, oh, he's he's of the, of the devil. His, his, his power is demonic. And uh, they were wrong. But I had, there's, they're still saying it today. This is some serious name mm-hmm. calling. He is demon possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? Yep. We're still hearing that today. Oh, of course we are, because again, we don't really want to submit to Jesus in most cases, because the moment we do, it's no longer about me. It's about him and what he wants. And people would rather, you know, do their own thing and be their own God. I mean, that's Adam and Eve's problem from the beginning. It's still our problem today. And to submit to Jesus is a very hard thing for people to do. It's interesting. Uh, many years ago, I was preaching on forgiveness. 
And the one thing my wife as a principal has taught me is she said, be practical with your preaching. In other words, just don't say you need to forgive other people. Give them either a story or steps how to get there. So I came up with like three steps, you know. When you leave this service today or right now in this service, you need to identify that person you haven't forgiven. When you get home, you need to either call them on the phone or arrange to have lunch or something with them and then literally say to them, I sinned against you and against the Lord by not forgiving you. I'm going to do that. I was blown away by the number of people that came to me later and said, I've never heard a preacher say that before. And I really didn't know how to forgive. You made it all too plain. And I don't like that. <laughs> you mean when, when God says to forgive others just as you have been forgiven, we're yeah. actually supposed to do that? Yeah, we're supposed that what to you're do saying? it. That's all. And it's not that complicated. Tom, can we have lunch next week? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Here's a question. What would you say are the two biggest problems in the church today? I think one of the big problems is lack of leadership. And what I mean by that is among the clergy and among the elders, uh, if we're people pleasers, then oftentimes we're not good leaders. That doesn't mean you don't love people and are not gentle with them and listen to them. But I think that for most leaders, it's how do we keep the people coming and how do we keep the money in, coming in the door rather than, I'm sorry, here's the truth. And good leaders are always saying, here's the truth, or wait a minute, you know, we need to be going this direction, not that direction. So I think that's one of the big ones. The other big problem in the church is we love our entertainment. And entertainment has become so big in Christianity mm. that uh, we've almost diminished, I think, in, our, in many ways, not only our prayer time together and our fellowship together and the Word together because we love our music way too much. And I love the music, too. Don't get me wrong. And all you music lovers, don't call me. I love the music. But quite frankly, you know, that is not what the Bible emphasizes. It talks about the, in Acts 2, about the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer. And I asked my music director, I said, where's music in that? And she said, yeah, I figured you'd bring that up. <laughs> so, yeah, it's not, I think those are two huge issues. We've got to get away from the entertainment. I saw a meme over Christmas of, this is what Christmas is really all about. And it showed some pictures of some mega churches uh, preparing for their Christmas services. One of them had several angels being lowered down <laughs> from the rafters on, on on zip lines as they came down into the audience, right? Because that's what Christmas is all about. Yeah. You know, sometimes you got to wonder, is it really about entertainment or you know, but we all enjoy quality worship. Oh, of course we do. Right, so it's not wrong to do things well, but when you find yourself being you stop being a participant in the worship and you start watching a performance that is the line that I think you have to start you know noticing right away i think i'm going to go with the issue in the local churches today in some churches i should say is that they become a place where where their initiatives their programs they become the ministry of the church and the particip- the people in the pews need to just come alongside and do the ministry that the church is doing. They need to volunteer and they need to give and they need to whatever. I like the Home Depot model of church. If you remember, they used to have a, an ad that says, you can do it, we can help. The people in the pews are the ministers of the church. They are the ones that should be doing the ministry. And the local church should be equipping them and serving them and helping them do their local ministry. And I, I, so in a lot of ways, I think, and the larger the church gets, 
I think this tends to be more of an issue where that model is reversed, and it's the big church that's doing all the ministries, and we're there to support it. Mm-hmm. Tom, I thought your comments were interesting, and Jeff's son, Sam, who's a worship leader, just gave you the stink eye. So <laughs> <laughs> You're going to have to live with that the rest I'm of okay, the day. I'm okay. I'm sorry. Right. I didn't see a stink eye. <laughs> uh, okay. We'll take a little break. Lots more time for Guy Talk. Let me know what question you have for the Power Panel 8 Seven seven nine three three two four eight four. Any question you like? Eight seven seven nine thirty three twenty four eighty four. Listen to Faith Radio Live or on demand, no matter where you go. Download the free Faith Radio app in your app store today. Welcome to Guide Talk. Let me know what your questions are. 877-933-248. Eight four. Here's a question, gentlemen. According to Luke 2, Mary was betrothed to Joseph at the time of the census and at the time of Jesus' birth. When did they get married? And if Elizabeth was from the line of Aaron and Mary from the line of David, how were they cousins? I'm looking at you, Tom Parrish. Um, we, the Bible doesn't specifically tell us when they got married. So we don't have anything definitive. However, since they were betrothed, that was a legal obligation among the Jewish people. So sometime after Jesus was born, it became a legal matter, and they were married. I can't tell you when. I don't know how. Sorry, the second question was, um, it, how were they cousins? Uh, how were they, they cousins? One was uh, Elizabeth. Elizabeth was from the line of Aaron and Mary from the line of David. How were they cousins? Jeff, what do you think? <laughs> I'm thinking the genealogies, like in Luke and Matthew, and trying to sort that out. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I've never looked at this issue. I've never heard it asked. Is this where we can phone a friend? Or? Yeah, you can do a lifeline if you like. Yeah, a lifeline. That'd yeah. be good. Do we have multiple choice ever yes, in do. this format? Yes, you can. Whatever you like. <laughs> I'm for it. Yeah, we can even resume with this uh, later if, uh, in, in the show if you want. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I think the definitive Greek word that says cousin doesn't mean friend or anything. It means cousin in the way we understand it. So there was some connection there. Here's the problem. What I love, and I I love it when we ask these questions, and I'm all for it, but oftentimes we ask questions that are kind of in the cracks of the Bible, and the Bible doesn't fill it out for us. So we have to go back and look at Jewish history and see how this came down. And it's interesting when you look at both Matthew and Luke, the genealogies in there, how they wind up coming ultimately to Jesus, and yet they're a little bit different in the way they approach it. So they were cousins. I just don't know how they they were. Yeah, I don't know that I, I've ever seen. I'm, I'm just reviewing right now. I don't know that there's any specific thing that tells us how they were related or what level of cousins they were. 
Uh, it's just we know that they were related in some way. That gives us a, a sense that they were part of the same family and they would probably would have been uh, close and dependent upon one another. And, of course, we have this great scene when Mary shows up and John the Baptist, who is uh, further along than Jesus, jumps in her womb, you know, when, when he comes in contact with the Jesus who's still in Mary's womb. And I just, I love that scene, that it's kind of the, one of the first witnesses that this baby is special. And it's one of the witnesses that baby is a baby. Yeah. And too often the church has ignored that. And I see too many churches today going along with the culture when it's the woman's choice in abortion. And what's sad about that is, is the scriptures are very emphatic about, I knew you before I created you in the womb. He said to Jeremiah. So we've got a lot to look at there. And my experience is, I've told Bill before, I've worked with an awful lot of women who have had abortions and are now living with grief and shame and anger and help them learn how to forgive and to be forgiven. Uh, there's more of that that goes on than people realize. You just don't hear it on the local news. All right, here's another question. Gentlemen, how do you convince an atheist there is a God? How do you go about proving it? Well, you, you, you can't really prove it scientifically. Uh, number one, uh, and nobody can prove there isn't a God scientifically. Scientific proof requires repeatability, and it's just something you can't do. Um, you can look at the historical uh, account of Jesus that he came and was a man and that he lived and taught and died and rose again, and even that, an historical event cannot be proven scientifically. That's why in a court of law, when we look at evidence, it's always beyond a reasonable doubt is the standard of evidence to prove that something happened historically. So I can't prove to you scientifically that, you know, Abraham Lincoln was the president of the United States, but I can present you with evidence that would show you beyond a reasonable doubt that he actually was the president of the United States. Uh, same with the resurrection of, of Jesus Christ. So we can, as Paul did, as was his practice, he reasoned and debated with the Jews to convince them that Jesus was the Christ. And I can imagine how he might have gone about doing that. And he probably went back to the Old Testament and said, look, the Bible says that there is going to be one who is going to come, born of a virgin, come as a child from the line of David. He will teach in parables. He'll be, uh, be do wonderful signs and miracles, be betrayed by a friend, be pierced for our transgressions, hung on a cross, and rise again. And hundreds of years before that happened, God told us it was going to happen, and then it did. What are you going to do with that information? And I think Paul often would prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Jesus was who he said he was. And that's all we can do. We can't convince anybody. They have to be convinced themselves in their own heart. You know, in my early years of ministry, I was a terrible evangelist. I mean, I loved to, to share the gospel when with people. When did you start improving? Uh, I started improving when the Lord slapped me upside of the head with a woman who was an aeronautical engineer who was an atheist. Okay. And it kind of got my thinking turned around. Here's basically how I approach it. We believe the Word of God that says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Most of the atheists I know have never seriously read the Word of God, never seriously looked at the history. And so what I do with almost every atheist, and I, I have family members that are continually setting me up with their atheist uncle or whatever, so I, I go to, uh, you know, uh, have lunch with these people often, and then in the given year, several people. What I do to them is they will, I say, tell me about your atheism, how you gave that conclusion, and I let them talk as long as they want. And they give me this big story, and they're logical and everything else. And then I'll say to them, obviously, 
you know, you're a very scientific person and you understand how science works and you have measured it all out. So therefore, you have really studied the world of religions. You have really studied the Bible. Tell me, what are the seven claims of Jesus in the Gospel of John? <laughs> and I had them sit there and they just look at me like, uh, I said, wait a minute. You don't know what the seven claims are? It's one of the most important things in the Bible. You mean to telling me you're betting your eternity on something you haven't studied, but you wouldn't do that in any other scientific realm? What's wrong with you? I've actually said that to people. And I had one guy say to me, well, well what do I need to do? I said, well, I'm going to have you read the Gospel of John, 21 chapters, one per day. And I'll give you both a challenge and a question for each one of those. I have a document I developed along that line. And I have seen a majority of those people, honestly, come to faith in Jesus Christ because they never read it. And the Holy Spirit had no way of getting a hold of them. And logic wasn't enough. They finally had to get involved with the Word. So am I a better evangelist? No, I'm still not that good. (laughs) But I know the process and the process. Get them to actually look at the Word and do it out of their reasoning and context in the way they look at the world. So can I list off a few passages here? Please. Luke 24, Jesus to the, on the road to Emmaus says, and he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. In Acts 8, then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told them the good news about Jesus. In Acts 9, he talked and debated with the Jews, uh, but they tried to kill him. Acts 14, that Paul and Barnabas went into the Jew- Jewish synagogues, and there they spoke effectively to to a great number of people. Acts 17, they reasoned with them from the scriptures to prove that Jesus is the Christ. He reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews. He reasoned in the synagogues. He spoke boldly, boldly proving that Jesus was the Christ, Acts 18. So again and again and again, this is what the early church did. So how do you convince someone who doesn't believe? You introduce them to the truth of God, what he has done for them, and that he loves them, he came for them, he died for them, and he offers salvation to them. Nicely done, Jeff Redorn. Hmm. Tom, anything else before we uh, get ready for a break here? I agree with Jeff. It's the way we've got to do it. And the more we can get people to actually look at the word. But really, 90% of good evangelism, and I think you've seen this, Jeff, is listening. Hmm. It is not telling. It is listening. And like my mother always said, my good German mother who died several years ago, she said, you give somebody enough rope, they'll hang (laughs) themselves. And you give people enough time to talk, they will tell you their spiritual needs. They will tell you how they came to these conclusions, and then you take from their conclusions, how do you get them to the Word of God? I have asked a number of people, so what do you think happens when you die? And it's amazing to me that people actually don't think about this question. Hmm. Well, think about it. The the football player on Monday has Hmm. the heart attack or the heart thing. What did everybody in that stadium do? The players get on their knees, everybody. Right. And when, when we're faced with death, we go back to what I always talk about, those three major questions we always ask. And, you know, the one big one is, what happens when I die? Yeah. And people want to know. Nobody was asking what the score of the game was. Nobody was asking what the Dow Jones average was. What's going to happen and what can we do? And everybody prayed. And even on ESPN, one of the commentators prayed, prayed on, on air. the air. All right, we'll take a break. We'll come back. Lots of time for your questions. Let me know what they are. 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. We are also uh, excited about what's coming up at the end of this month. Jesus loves the little children, and right now there are kids living in extreme poverty, and we can give them hope. You can learn more about uh, One Child at MyFaithRadio.com. We'll be right back. 
It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Welcome to the afternoon show. I am Bill Arnold. And you know, I had a guest yesterday that was saying that some of the people he speaks to, they don't like that song. They don't like it. That's no what they way. Said. That's what they said to him. Yeah. But that song never gets old to me. Ah, uh, I don't know. I like it. <laughs> I do. I wake up at two in the morning singing it. I don't yeah. know the problem. Yeah. Um, and a friend of mine recorded it for me. How nice. I like it. I yes. do too. Uh, I like it. So Stick with it. I, I plan to. All right. Um, let's see here. Some great questions are coming in. Let's see. Jesus sent his disciples out with orders to cast out demons, among other things. The church has stopped doing this. What are your thoughts? Have any of you had experience casting out demons? Almost my whole ministry. Okay. And, you know, I, here I am. A, people say, are you really a Lutheran? Well, I say I'm an evangelical Lutheran, <laughs> Bible-believing. But yes, I have run into a lot of the demonic. Uh, we, in our church right now, we have a deliverance ministry where you can come and actually have people work with you for deliverance of the demonic or for whatever's going on deep inside of you. It's real. It's out there. And the problem is, so long as we ignore it or we try to logically approach everything from a academic point of view, we're setting ourselves up to be hurt badly by these things. And uh, it's, it's real. It's out there. And yes, we confront it. And it's not as difficult as people think. And every Christian has the authority in the name of Jesus to command the demons and to cast them out. Most just don't know how to do it. Um. I haven't. Um, I live in the suburbs. There's no demons out in the suburbs. So. <laughs> um, I'll give you a call sometime. <laughs> yes. No, we, we live in a world that we is, like we talked about earlier, we live in a spiritual battle. That is our battle, and Paul describes it um, um, several times in Scripture. And we see, we have examples of demonic activity in Scripture, and we see that those who are in Christ have authority over these uh, demons as well. Um, so we we I, I think the risk is 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 that we start seeing demons behind every oh, you know sure. tree, right? And we don't yeah. want to do that. Uh, but when you you're going to know if someone is truly and honestly demon possessed, and uh, and and I know number of people that have around the world or in inner cities and so on that have run across people that have been demon possessed. And one story in Africa actually that a pastor friend of mine they prayed over this woman. She, she the look on her face was just demonic, and they prayed over her. And the pastor saw her the next day, and they joined. She joined them in their worship service, and the the entire countenance on her face had changed completely. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've actually seen that. I've experienced it. And I am very honestly can tell you that I have helped Satanists and uh, witches come out of that into faith with Jesus. Uh, We need to be as bold with them as they try to be with us. I actually had one Satanist call me, uh, didn't like what I was doing with some people to come to faith out of his coven. And he said, I'm going to curse you. And curse your family. And I, I don't know where this came from, Bill, but right out of right away I said, in essence, you're cursing Jesus. And believe me, he's got a lot more power than you. So it'd go down for five generations in your family. Never heard from him again. But they're they're out there, they're real, and we need to know how to talk to him. All right, there's a question or comment. According to Ray Comfort, who's a evangelist, mm-hmm. you know Ray? You know mm-hmm. who he is, mm-hmm. Jeff? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
You cannot convince someone to be a Christian when trying to appeal to their intellect. You must appeal to their conscience and their knowledge of sin and God's holiness. It's only then that they may see their need for a Savior. I understand what he's saying. I don't disagree with it from the standpoint that it's not just a logical process. You know, it's like when I fell in love with my wife, there was no logic to it. You know, and I think most of us feel that way. When we fall in love with Jesus or come to know him or somebody has witnessed to us and it sparks something within us, it's not so much a logical process that we go through, although you can look back and see things, but it is that relationship. So in one sense, he's right. I would I would be careful not to become intellectually lazy, which I'm afraid too many Christians do. We have to put the whole thing together. And Jesus said we're made up of heart, mind, soul, and body. So I want to use every one of those spheres that I can when I present the gospel or try to help somebody come to faith. You know, very early in my faith journey, I read a couple of books, Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell and also The Case for Christ by by Lee Strobel. Both were very significant in my gaining yeah. understanding of, of why I believe what I believe. And I don't think we are ever asked to check our reason at the door. Uh, God says, come, let us reason together. And in fact, in 2 Corinthians 5, it says that since then we now uh, know what the fear of the Lord is. We try to persuade men. Um, so there, I think there is an intellectual component, not exclusively an intellectual component, but we want people to reason and when we see Scripture reasonably, when we see the prophecies that we were talking about earlier in the Old Testament, and they have been fulfilled by this man uniquely, Jesus Christ, how do you explain that? Reason with me. Who told us the future ahead of time with 100% reliability? Only a God can do that, and God inspired his word. So I don't—I—I— I, I, I understand the comment that it's more than just an intellectual pursuit, uh, but we don't want to abandon the the reason that it takes to understand that Christ died for our sins. I understand what he's saying, but I know a little bit about Ray Comfort and his ministry, and I know that in his ministry, they teach people how to study the Bible. That is an intellectual process where you take Correct. this step, this step, this step. So I, I understand his heart. But I think if we really could sit down and talk with Ray, I don't think he'd throw away the intellect. He'd say, well, let me clarify what I mean by that. And I've known— I think there's more to that probably, too, because he is— if you've ever watched Ray Comfort with atheists on university campuses and stuff, that's all he does is in, to pursue them intellectually and says, well, if you believe this, then this is the logical community. If you believe this, then this, and so right. on. So he, he, he uses reason and logic uh, robustly in his ministry. All right, John 1430, Satan is the ruler of this world. How do we rightly acknowledge the extent of Satan's influence in the world? How do we rightly acknowledge the extent of Satan's influence in the world? Well, I think he is. I've often described Satan's role today as the world is a playground and Satan is the big bully on the playground. God has decided for his own purposes that he's going to allow Satan a certain amount of authority in this world right now today. In fact, he's called the prince of this world and the god of this age. He has a certain amount of authority in this world until that day that God is going to come and defeat him. Remember the prophecy is that he will bruise your heel, meaning Satan will bruise Jesus's heel. This is in Genesis chapter three, but he, Christ, will crush your head. Mm -hmm. He is a defeated foe, but not 
today. He roams the earth as as uh, looking for people to devour. He comes to kill and to steal and destroy. And in fact, John says that the whole world is in control of the evil one. Um, when Jesus was tempted, J- Satan said, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you bow down and worship me. That means he has some authority mm-hmm. and control in this world. But one day... The principal is going to step out of his office and go grab that bully by the back of the neck and yank him off the playground. And I hope that day is soon because he is a defeated foe. Absolutely. And I think there's something more the church can do if Christians would wake up. You know, we pray the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I don't think that's a nice metaphor. (laughs) I think that's meant seriously that we have the power to do this. Here's the problem. How does Satan go after most of us? Through temptation, through deception, through our own personal desires? As Christians, we should be giving those over to Jesus. And the more we give those over to Jesus, the more power of Jesus we have to stand up to those mm-hmm. things. And it's it's tragic that the church has pretty much capitulated to the culture when the culture should be afraid of the church. Oh, in, in so many ways. And and Paul says we should know his schemes. You were just talking about some of the things that Satan does. He tempts and he torments and he lies. So how do we battle that? Well, we battle his lies by knowing the truth. And so we should be um, a studiers of God's word. When he tempts, God says to flee from him. And uh, when he torments, uh, we're, we, we're supposed to ex- experience the persecution of this world and receive it with joy because we know that we share in the persecution of Christ. Because blessed is he who is persecuted because of righteousness, right? And they persecuted Jesus first. And so t- we too will be persecuted. But I think that's his schemes. Uh, but never forget, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. He can he can destroy the body, but he can't touch your eternal destiny. Nicely and, done. And I think sometimes we want to overly spiritualize our battle with the satanic. And what I mean by that is this. Um, I do stuff on Facebook. I get a lot of followers. That's all well and good, you know, churches and whatever. Uh, a couple of years ago, I put up on there, you know, the level of abortions are in the United States. There are over 300,000 churches that claim Jesus as Lord and Savior. If every church would take three or four women a year hmm. and help them through their pregnancy financially, emotionally, time, child care, things like that, we might be able to wipe out most of that. You know how many responses I got from all the churches out there that got this? One. Hmm. One. And I'm thinking, we want a, we want. We want the Lord just come in with fire and thunder and in things when Jesus is saying, my major way to do this is through you, my believers, my people. And yet we keep letting the culture dominate us rather than the other way around. All right. Here's a very important question. We know a Christian can't be possessed, but can a Christian be cursed? I think we can be the subject of demonic activity, tormented in a way. I agree with the the question that a believer in Christ has been filled with the Spirit of God and cannot be possessed by a demon. So I, I agree with that conclusion. But yes, we we look, Paul was tormented, and it says, with the thorn in his flesh, it's talked about in Second Corinthians, and we know that that was a messenger of Satan to torment him. So yes, believers can be tormented by demonic activity. Well, what we can do, and most of us don't know how to do, is to stand up to that <laughs> and to say no. I'm not going to—I am a child of the King of Kings. I have been covered with the blood of Jesus. 
And oftentimes uh, I use that very language when I work with people that are caught up in this or feel they've been cursed or whatever. Some know, some don't know, or they feel like the, the devil is really after them. Use your authority and speak the name of Jesus out loud and use his shed blood and the devil won't stand up to that I, after a while. I like that. But Paul prayed three times that God would take the thorn away from him, he and did. he didn't. And it, it goes on to say, and so I learned that your grace is sufficient for me. I've, yeah. I've, you're, I've, my power is made perfect in my weakness, right? Right. So he, it wasn't taken away from him. He and wasn't. Paul exercised his authority greatly. So that's, I, I agree I with agree that, with but you. I see Paul's example. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I tell people 30 times. Maybe that's the difference. You know, <laughs> three's not enough. But the question is, can a Christian be cursed? Tormented is one thing, but can you be cursed? Sure, we can be cursed, but how much power that cursing has is directly related to our relationship with the Lord Jesus. I think Satan cursed Jesus. I think the people cursed Jesus. We just read about that a little bit earlier. How did it affect Jesus? (laughs) It didn't in the sense that he could stand up to it. I just don't think we've explored that enough to understand that when we've been cursed, use your authority in Christ Speak up. And if the Lord tells you, as Jeff had mentioned, and I agree, if the Lord comes back and tells you, I'm going to let this remain so you grow in your faith, that's one thing. But too often or not, we don't hear from the Lord directly on that, and we just let the curse have its power. Yeah, you can be cursed, but you don't have to put up with it. A missionary friend told me a story. They were in Africa showing the Jesus music film, and they showed up at a small village, and the pastor was going to get up and introduce the film to this village. And... Suddenly, he couldn't speak at yeah. all. His tongue had swollen. His throat had swollen. And they saw there there was three witch doctors in the back row cursing this guy. And they brought him down off the stage. They prayed over him. He eventually got better. But they did show the movie, and many people came to faith in Christ. Uh, but yes, is is there demonic activity? Yes, that's the world that we live in. Yeah, we'll take a break. We'll be back. Uh, let me know if, what questions you might have. Eight seven seven nine three three. 2484. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting myfaithradio.com hmm. Welcome back to the show. You're listening to Guide Talk. My power panel is Jeff Verdorn and Pastor Tom Parrish. We we're just talking about blessings, curses. Why the curse is interesting because it seems that it's a, a pronouncement that's made by some supernatural power or something or uh, some someone that has some kind of magic spell or witchcraft or some kind of curse or or jinx or something like that that would be something i don't believe a christian could be uh, uh affected by yeah so you have i think when we think of a curse especially as as it relates i'm thinking of you know Balaam was called the curse the Israel and so on you're calling on a power other than god's power mm-hmm. yeah. to affect something that you want done probably negatively to somebody else or to a nation or some event or whatever so you know, it's a very dangerous place to be in when you're calling on powers other than the lord of hosts right 
my experience with people that have been involved in this, especially witches, who then uh, came out of it and became Christian, they would tell me that they would curse somebody, and they they had success for a while. And then all of a sudden, the very same curses started to come back on them. Hmm. So if you're listening to this program and you want to curse somebody, be very careful because it will boomerang and come back. Because you're really cursed, trying to curse Jesus, and he's like a mirror, and it's going to come back many times wow. more. Wow. Here's a question, gentlemen. Was Saul uh, sent away after his conversion to learn about the scriptures? I thought he was for three years. Yeah, I, you know, I've I've noticed in our culture, in the church in America— Somebody well-known will come to faith in Christ, and the first thing we want to do is put them up on a stage and have them start teaching people and speaking to the church. And it's like, oh, wait a minute here. How about if you go and learn God's ways through the study of his word before we get them up and start you know, having them preach to the church? Um, and that's, I think, exactly what happened to Paul. I think when his time away was a time of learning uh, and revelation, by the way. We know that Paul also received direct revelation from Christ as well. So when he says, the gospel that I received, and he received it by revelation, I pass on to you a first import, that God, that, that he was crucified, that he was buried, and that on the third day he rose again. So that was not Paul's gospel. That Paul, gospel was revealed to him. So yes, he, he, was, uh, he learned both through revelation and by study. And we all need that. I mean, it's what we call Christian maturity. Mm. We need to go through experiences in life. We need to go through situations to where we're forced, quite honestly, to go back to the Word, go to Jesus, cry out to Him, learn how to deal with this. And that's part of that growth process. Paul had to go through that. Paul was very steeped in Judaism. He's very he's a Pharisee. He knew the Torah. He knew that and the Pharisee of Pharisees, he, he called himself. He knew who he was. But when on the road to Damascus he ran into Jesus, you know, he was so shook up by the whole thing that yeah, he spent time in Arabia. It talks about using that language. And I think he had to go learn. I think he had to go back and learning was he went back to those same scriptures and reanalyzed what they were mm, saying. Mm, good word. All right. Um, here's a question. People who were believers before they uh, started suffering severe mental illness, which took them over, um, what do you think is happening with, with them spiritually? That they are believers? They're believers, and then they had mental illness, and it, it's taken them over. So the in, question is, will they still be in heaven? Well, I believe that at, if at a point in time you believe God says that he will save you and mm-hmm. you have eternal life and that eternal life lasts for, wait for it, for eternity. Um, so yes, I am a full believer in the doctrine of assurance of salvation that once you believe in, and are saved, once your sins are forgiven, once you're made new, a new creation, once you're justified before God, once you have peace with God and uh, and uh, are united with him, you're united with him for all of eternity. So let's settle that doctrine and and build that as one of our first foundations. Now, when it comes to personality, the psyche, the soul, the body, you're talking, look, there are some issues that are physiological that that we, we dwell as a soul in a physical body that has a material, a biological brain. Uh, look, we don't know how that body-soul connection works. We really don't know much about it. Um, so 
whether this person's psychological issues are biology, biology, physiological, or whether they are demonic or whether they are something else, I I mean, we just don't know. Um, But if they're saved, they're saved. I think that was the first and probably the underlying question that was asked. Yes, the person is saved if they believed in their heart that Jesus rose from the dead. I agree. And I think one of the dangers is, is that when we classify people as mentally ill, we think they can no longer, you know, really absorb the good news. And when I go visit people in mental wards, uh, family members, whatever, I still offer to pray with them. I still, you know, they can sit there and, and not move around or they can be screaming or that. I also encourage families put on Christian music. Hmm. There is a power there. And I watch people that have mental issues calm down significantly when Christian music was played, when the name of Jesus is pronounced, when they're prayed over. And I think we can't let people go. I, I don't care how mentally ill they are. If they're your family members and they love Jesus before that happened, you keep going after them to that final moment that they go home. Totally agree with that. Faith of a child, right? Yeah. All right. Um, we only have a couple of minutes left, but fortunately, we're going to have an extended version today of Guy Talk. Did you guys know that? No, we didn't. Well, no. well guess what? <laughs> <laughs> guess what? I you guys know. are going to be eating dinner later. What? Rosie, you're, poke, you're, you're, you're pointing your finger. I said, I gave them emails. Okay. Well, then you should have I, I'm sorry, I didn't read email. my email, but the pizza's on the way, right? <laughs> right, the pizza's <laughs> okay. coming. Did she send the email about the same time that you told us on air here? <laughs> <laughs> it just got there right now. Probably. I love uh, it. All right, let's look at uh, Revelation chapter 21, verse 8. And the question is, will believers lose their salvation if they lie? Like in Revelation 21, verse 8 says. Um. So, no, we were just talking about our assurance of salvation. There's too many places in Scripture that define that once you are born again, you are born again for all of eternity, um, including passages such as your salvation is kept in heaven for you, shielded by God's power. Ephesians 1 says that you have received the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. So, verse 8, so let's now... so. Let's establish that once again, the assurance of salvation. We turn to Revelation 21.8. It says, but the cowardly, the the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will experience the lake of fire. He is describing sinners. He is describing those who are not saved. Those are not believers. It's just like 1 Corinthians uh, 6, which says that uh, certain people listing off a a um, a list of sins will not inherit the kingdom of, of heaven. Once again, Paul is describing unbelievers, the sexually immoral, the thieves, the adulterers, and so on, will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. But the key is we know those are unbelievers because he then goes on to say in 1 Corinthians verse uh, uh, 6, verse 11, he says, and that's what some of you were. Right. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you are no longer a sinner in God's eyes, you are a saint in God's eyes. So when you see those lists, that's describing unbelievers. One of my favorite chapters in the Bible, Revelation 21, I love the first part. I use it often at funerals. No more tears, no more weeping, Mm. no more death. But if you look at verse 5 and following up to verse 8, you're right. He is talking first to the believers, but then in verse 8 it starts with the word but, and I just looked at the Greek. It's a conjunction, 
And it's a contrast. This is this is this group over here. Let me tell you about this group over here. So it is an obvious contrast between the two. Yeah, verse 7, those will inherit all this, but these other guys won't. Good point. Hmm. All right, got questions coming in, but I don't know. We have very little time left between now and the top of the hour. So I don't think I'm going to start a new question uh, until uh, the next uh, 30-minute segment, which is coming right after the top of the hour. And that means uh, there's plenty of time for your questions. Send them over, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Guy Talk will continue for another 30 minutes with my power panel, Pastor Tom Parrish and Jeff Verdorn. And if you um, have not downloaded the Faith Radio app, I think you should give it a shot. Definitely check it out. If you don't like it, you can remove it, I'm sure, off your phone. But uh, you're going to find it to be very uh, accessible and helpful. And I have it on my phone, and I love it. So that's uh, we're going to take your questions again at 877-933-2484. And if you uh, have a question that's been bothering you for a while, maybe you've wanted to talk to your pastor, and maybe you haven't had time to do it, and now is a good time to do it. You can send it over, and we'll um, we will address it for you. Eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. I hope you're having a great day. I love being with you, and it's uh, great to have the guys back here in the studio for Guy Talk. It's such an enjoyable segment. I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. And again, uh, Jeff Verdorn, Tom Parrish are my guests. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.